Hi, you're tuning in to Rusty Thomas, where once a week he brings the brilliance of Scripture to every dynamic of life. For the last 40 years, Rusty has served the Lord as a father, minister, and political figure on the streets, churches, and capitals in our nation and abroad. You are going to hear compelling truths that will prayerfully build up your faith and equip you to meet the challenges of life with the confidence of God's Word. This is Kingdom Moments with my father, Rusty Thomas. Well, praise God, brothers and sisters. This is uh, Kingdom Moments with uh, Rusty Thomas. Um, One of the things we try to accomplish through this podcast is to have interviews. And uh, I really am blessed we, we we have tried several times to do this interview with our special guest Michael Foster. Um, we <laughs> let's just say there's been some resistance uh, for making this happen, but this is the third time, brother Michael, and we have overcome. Praise be to God. So, anyway, um, the scripture tells us in the book of Isaiah uh, that. Uh, The church is to arise, shine, for our light has come. And in the context of that, the prophet assures us that there's darkness and gross darkness covering the earth. But in the the midst of that context, the church's duty is still to arise and shine, for the light has come. And brothers and sisters, throughout redemptive history... Uh, The church has gone through trying times. You know, we've been attacked from within. We've been attacked from without. Um, There, you know, from without, there was, you know, uh, imprisonment. There was the taking and the spoiling of our goods. There was martyrdom. And then from within, all kinds of false teaching, you know, heresies and, and error. And, you know, God, during those times, he has continually brought the church from terror to triumph. Now, obviously, we're living in an age where there is massive, and I mean massive, sexual immorality and confusion uh, to the point where raising a generation that doesn't know the difference between a boy and a girl And so the spirit of the age is doing all that it can to, you know, feminize men and masculinize women. And uh, and one of the main reasons why I wanted this guest to be with us is because he wrote a a, with another brother. Uh, Michael, what's what's the other brother that you co-authored this book with? Name Dominic Tennant. He goes by Non. All right, awesome, awesome. So together, these brothers sat down and they penned, I believe, uh, a critical work uh, for this age, for this time, for this generation. And the name of the book is It's Good to Be a Man. And I have read it a few times. I've given it out like candy uh, one of the first times I read it, I had a highlighter and I was highlighting pretty much the entire book. And then I met a young man that I ministered the gospel to. And I figured, well, 
he he needs this book. And so I gave it away. That was my show prep there, Michael. Uh, But anyway, every young man, every man I know, I'm recommending this book and uh, giving it out. It's such an important work in this day. So, Michael, I want to thank you. I know you're very, very busy and taking time to be with us. But I believe, brother, that this book and what you're bringing to the table is critically important for the future of the gospel of the kingdom. So welcome, dear brother. Thank you for having me, Rusty. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. So I thought what's best, brother, if we can, if we could just go through maybe some of the highlights of each chapter, because I want to whet people's appetite and prayerfully, uh, and we will put your link to your book uh, on this podcast because I really believe that um, every every young man, old man needs to get a copy of this book. So, brother, if you will, can you just well, first of all, can you tell us, brother, what inspired you and, and Nam, what, what did you observe that sort of inspired you for the need of writing this book? Sure. Um, Nan and I both, like a lot of guys, uh, come from non-Christian families or families that aren't functioning as God would have them function. And uh, you grow up and you get some woman to marry you, and then you start having kids. And that, when you especially have a son, this really comes home, it, you've because manhood is like a baton that you hand off to the next generation. It's, it's caught much more than it's taught. And when it's time to hand that baton to a son in particular, you feel that masculinity deficit. You're like, I don't know how to be a man. And it's crazy. It's backwards that a lot of times we uh, become a husband and a father before we realize that we really weren't prepared for manhood. And so I've had uh, my own sort of moment where I realized that deficit many years ago with the birth of, um, well, right before the birth of my oldest son, Hudson, who's a little, almost 17, and Nan had some experiences like that. So that's uh, one component, this, uh, our own experience wanting to be a godly, faithful, biblical man. Um, On the flip side, there also, I am a pastor. I've been um, in ministry of one form or another the, the vast majority of my adult life. And part of that, I was a youth pastor. And I've kept up with a lot of the folks I've ministered to when I was younger and they were younger. And as they moved into kind of marrying age, uh, I got lots of questions about pursuing women, uh, choosing the right woman for uh, to be a wife, um, all sorts of things like that. And I had a desire to start a podcast that would uh, help them navigate the situation we find ourselves in, which is quite different post-internet, um, post-birth uh, control, post-no-fault divorce, post-high-def uh, pornography, you know, post-Adderall uh, and methylphenidate and all sorts of drugs um, in, a, in a world where... Uh, men have been feminized through the school system or through media. Uh, masculine men are treated like big, stupid dopes, or fathers are derided uh, as um, an oaf like Homer Simpson or 
and pick any sitcom father really with few exceptions and they grew up in that world and in a world being taught to hate what god made them um which is a man and so i used to go for a jog um every day after work i'd come home and emily my wife and i would go for a run and it's like a two mile loop and uh the we'd run one mile and then run it back so two miles at the one mile marker was a mailbox that belonged to the goodmans (laughs) so and when i'd stop at the goodmans house and like you know and get ready to do the long mile home um i'd always think to myself yeah it's good to be a man and it's good to be what god made me and i i like that because what i don't like about a lot of the Mm. kind of sexuality masculinity um ministries is that they're always uh, reacting to the negative right they're really defined by whatever the feminist egalitarian agenda is and i wanted to start with positive masculinity right like what does it mean according to god's word to be a man and the first thing we find out is that we're made in his image and that's good it's very good that's what it says in genesis it says the same thing about women but um, I could speak a little more to being a man, being one and all. And, and, and certainly I had a personal investment in figuring out how to be uh, masculine in a godly way and help those who are under my care, my own sons and those in my church and those in the broader community as God opens a door. So that's where it came from. I started writing on it. I started the Facebook page, had like 50 likes. And um, at the time, Nantan and I, like all good men, we're having theological arguments about a, a separate issue. But in the process of that argument, <laughs> I found that he was thinking about many of the same things I was thinking about in reading, because it had come to my attention that a lot of these young Christian men were reading secular thinkers. And um, it's sometimes shocking thinkers, very crass, very focused. Um, really on um, coitus, like sex, in an erotic sense, um, and not on the the whole man or whatever. And so I went and started listening to all these guys. Um, I was part-time in the ministry at that moment, and I ran an online comic book store. And so when I'm loading up my orders, um, which was you know a couple hours a day, I just listened to audiobooks and listened to these podcasts. And I digested hundreds of hours of that stuff. And at first, like anyone, very critical. You know, why are we listening to this Jungian psychologist, Jordan Peterson, that sounds like Kermit the Frog? You know, why are people doing this? Why are we listening to these pickup artists that are <laughs> obsessed with their, their notch count? In other words, how many women they've slept with? Why are these guys doing this? And some of that criticism remains, obviously. But in time, it became clear that these men were speaking some truth, tainted truth, but some truth that was uh, not common in the church, that had almost been lost at a cultural level. And that's why these guys really had this, um, really had this appeal to these young men. Men don't want to be effeminate. Men don't want to be failures. There may be a time where they surrender to that, but in general, they don't want to. So they go looking. They go looking for help. And nowadays, if you don't know how to change a tire or change your oil or fix something in your house, you just go to YouTube and search. 
So they went to YouTube and they searched and they found these guys. And I started to try to filter these teachings through a biblical lens and say, okay, what's, what agrees with God's word um, and what is just lies from hell? And one reason I wanted to do that is because I didn't want these men Amen. to be swept up into the hedonism and momentary focus of a lot of these men. I always tell people that you have no, uh, you have no workable theology of sexuality if it doesn't include death, right? If you, if you if you're not thinking about eternal destination, mm. eternal purpose, <laughs> uh, where you're heading. Uh, then sex really will just become secular in the sense of this moment, right? That's what the word secular means. You'll be focused about merely the here and now and not the hereafter. They both matter, though. And uh, heavenly-minded people are earthly good, right? Because they they focus on God's purpose, God's uh, word, and and the very apparent design in the world. Um, It doesn't take a genius to figure out uh, that a plug... Uh, where a plug goes when you're looking at a wall. It goes in the socket, right? Um, uh, puzzle pieces fit together for a reason. And right. so God's God's creation is kind of like a, sh- a shook-up puzzle. Um, you can start to connect things just by looking at it. It's not always it's somewhat mysterious at times, but there's a general revelation, a sort of general knowledge that, that comes through being created by God, whether you're a bird or a person. And so I wanted to bring that truth to the church um, that had been lost culturally and also protect our young men from the charlatans out there that would use truth um, as like a Trojan horse for a lot of terrible, costly sins such as sexual immorality, fornication, and really just a, a mindset that is truly uh, worldly. You know, so that was the motivation. Non agreed, so we started. And if you look at the yeah. beginning of our book, the introduction is super important. So if I write another book, I'm I don't know what I'll call the introduction. I'll call it "Don't read this book if you don't read this." I don't know, but in the introduction, we write that this book <laughs> is not about getting a wife or getting a girl or being a dad or marriage. This book is about being a man. And we also wrote that we didn't try to write a timeless book. I don't know that's within our ability as authors and men at this stage of our life, maybe ever. But we thought we could write something timely, something that would help people right now. And it's my hope that the work that we've done, and it's good to be a man, which is more or less done, like 75 episodes, I don't have anything else to say, wrote the book. We, we probably will write a follow-up on marriage, but it'll be uh, thinner. Um, and, uh, but we're hoping it would inspire people to take these ideas, this teaching from the Word of God, and further develop it. We wanted to be a, a, a catalyst. We don't think we're experts that have it all figured out, but we do think we can help men somehow. And I always tell men, I cannot give you GPS instructions for all things masculinity, but I can give you a compass and a topographical map and send you on your way. And that's been the goal from the get-go. 
It's good, brother. So good. So if we can, Michael, let's uh, start going through the chapters. And again, brother, if you can just give us, uh, you know, some of the summary, some of the highlights, some of the truths and principles uh, that you recorded in this great book, I think that would be awesome. So the first chapter we have is the war between patriarchies and what is interesting, brother, when I read through it, and it's so true that patriarchy is inevitable. Uh, you know, that's that's God's order. That's his government. That's what he's established in the earth. And you see it so clearly in the massive confusion, brother, because if you look at it with the transgendered movement, you know, who's the best woman? A man. Who's winning the beauty contest? A man. Who's winning the sporting events in women's sports? It's a man. And so men are ruling. You know what I mean? You cannot escape it. Now, obviously, that's a perversion and a distortion. But the truth remains, you cannot escape patriarchy. So, brother, I know that in this chapter, you kind of give the distinction between sort of the good patriarchy and the evil patriarchy. So if you can touch on that, brother, that's 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 a good topic to cover. Sure. One thing we wanted to accomplish with the first page of our book is to be able to tell if anyone read our book. And if, uh, if someone says it's good to be a man is all about how it's male leadership is intrinsically good in every manifestation and, and that we're super patriarchal without distinction, you just know they didn't read the book. They didn't read the first page, right? Because the very point we wanted to make is that patriarchy is something like gravity. It's part of God's uh, cosmic design. So when we hear cosmic, we think of, you know, black holes and uh, solar systems, whatever. But when we use the word cosmos in the Greek, uh, in the New Testament, it's talking about the, the order of all things, not just the physical things, but the spiritual order. There's an order to all things. And that order cannot be broken. Just like you can um, escape gravity for a time and augment other physical realities, there's a sense where you can, for a time, get away with um, trying to usurp patriarchy. And, uh, and you see that uh, where there are something that will last for a decade or whatever, but it can't sustain. I always tell people, um, if everyone is just having homosexual sex, how long does the world last? One generation, right? Just one generation. Like, and God's, God's ways are ultimately um, right. inescapable. Uh, there's no way you can avoid the consequence of, of, of them. You either get the benefits of the, of the consequences, the like good consequences, or you'll get the, the negative. That's kind of covenantal reality, right? Blessing, cursings, and all that. So we wanted to open with how patriarchy is, in fact, inevitable which is um, I studied um, sexuality uh, pretty deeply way back in the day in uh, my undergrad. And uh, that really comes from a book by Goldberg called um, The Inevitability of Patriarchy, which was then republished as Why Men Rule. He's a non-Christian, but he just shows that there's all there's ever been is patriarchal societies. There's matrilineal societies. That's how you track your heritage. Patriarchal society is um, talking about the hierarchical structure and the, the, the basically places of leadership. So we wanted to show uh, 
that that's inevitable and that's it can be corrupted. Uh, that's kind of a real theme in our book is the corruption of good things that God made, the twisting, the marring of those things. And so Satan is a patriarch. He is the father of lies. Jesus says, your father is the devil, your sons of the devil. So um, we have that patriarch, and then we have the father from which all fatherhood gets its name, God. Right, God the Father. So you are either a son of the devil or you're a son of God. There's nothing else. There's no neutrality. You belong to one of those categories. And ultimately, that is a battle of sorts that we have. And then that battle, that cosmic battle plays off. And of course, God's one. The, the devil's a, a dog in a choke chain. You know what I mean? They're not, it's not like yin and yang or anything. But just that the devil is seeking right. to usurp God's hierarchy. And that's why he attacks God's vice regent, God's representative, uh, Adam. And he does it through um, coming in the form of a snake. That's the creation of which Adam and Eve were to rule over. Then uh, he deceives the woman of which Adam was supposed to be her leader, ruling over her. And then she, um, through whatever, uh, gets Adam to go along. Adam's held responsible for it. But in there you see a, uh, a, a sort of flipping of the uh, of flow of authority. It should be God to Adam, Adam to Eve, Adam and Eve as mankind over creation. Instead, you have creation telling the woman who tells the man, and then the man and woman together blames it on God. <laughs> you know, so um, that's a that's a flattening out, twisting of hierarchy in order. <laughs> you know, and and so we wanted people to see that that's the battle and how that plays out at kind of a lower level. And the example we give in this chapter is of uh, Pharaoh, that Pharaoh is a patriarch of a sorts, right? He's the leader of a nation and he sees um, the Israelites as a potential threat to him. And so what does he do? Well, he tries to weaken them through hard labor and when he goes through all that stuff and it doesn't work, ultimately he has the firstborn sons killed. Now, why the firstborn sons? Why not the firstborn daughters? Well, the firstborn sons are the, the ones that will carry on the family name. They're the ones that will be the, the future leaders of those households. And to diminish and weaken Israel is to attack and kill the men. And when you read someone like J.C. Ryle and uh, his thoughts for young men, Ryle talks about how it's the devil's um, strategy to go after young men because he knows they're the future leaders. If you can corrupt them, then you can win the whole thing. If you win them, you can win the whole thing as well. So whoever gets to men wins. That's it. And so we wanted to show that patriarchy is inevitable. The question isn't whether, but which. Will you be a son of the devil or will you be a son, a son of God, right? Will you be what God made you to be or will you corrupt what God's given you into something um, horrible, disgusting, and destructive? And that's the real point of that first chapter. Awesome, brother. So good. You also mentioned in that chapter uh, the ploy, not only of Pharaoh, but of Absalom um, as one of the corruptions of patriarchy. Could you just explain that briefly, brother? Sure. I picked up that teaching from a guy named uh, Forney. He was a PCA ruling elder out of um, Toledo. I heard him mention it once how Absalom stole the hearts of Israel. And I thought, man, that is insightful. And so I went and looked at it and saw that, yeah, that's exactly right. Absalom um, 
basically he wants to usurp the authority of his father. So again, we have a, a picture of good and bad patriarchy. Absalom, like the devil, is not content in his place. And so he seeks to usurp the, the authority over him. He does this, though, by sitting at the gates of Israel. The gates of Israel is where judgments were, were passed, where wisdom was given to the people, where cases were heard by the elders. So Absalom gets all dressed up, looks all snazzy and all that stuff, shows a power, looks like someone that's in control, presents well. And then he says, what's your case? Tell me. And then he would hear their case and say, I'm on your side, right? You know, and if I would be king, you know, <laughs> sort of attitude. And, and in doing so, he steals the hearts of Israel. Now, Absalom may, well, we know Absalom was doing it for corrupt reasons, uh, but I think we have secular Absaloms that are a little more complicated than that. Some of them are just trying to get money. Um, I I don't like the direction I've seen Jordan Peterson go, where he's just like monetizing everything he can. It's, starting, it's, it's weakening his message. But for many years, it did seem, and I'm not saying this isn't true at some level, but it did seem that he just actually cared about young men. And he was giving them the best advice he could. He was being like a surrogate father to them. And... A lot of these secular Absaloms steal the hearts of our men by hearing them and, and uh, sympathizing with them and being their advocates. Now, the question is, are they being their advocate for godly purposes or is it just uh, kind of a feedback echo chamber validation machine? Um, that's the question. Mm -hmm. But we have tons of Absaloms. And I would just say, if you're losing your guys to Absalom, that's your fault. You know, um, how, how is there a relational vacuum for that to happen? It's because of um, your inactivity, usually. It's, it's, and I've, I've seen pastors rage against the manosphere in influencers. I don't rage against them with my own children, right? They, I disciple my kids. They know me and love me. I, you know, my son, there's a guy that's a real big deal right now, Andrew Tate. Um, and I've interacted with them once or twice, but, um, my son, like every other 12 to 18 year old in America knows who Andrew Tate is. And, uh, right. and I asked him, what do you think of Andrew Tate? And, and he just gave me his breakdown of what he thought, like Andrew Tate's not going to steal my son's heart. Cause I have it. And Solomon says, son, give me your heart, son, hear me. He's a father that's always going after his son's heart, right? Probably because he's Absalom's right. little brother and he ain't no fool. And so I think these Absaloms are um, a real danger, but what you should do is look at what they're doing right and say, you know what? The reason I'm losing them is because I'm not doing it. When I looked at the drag queens doing their story hours, um, to kids, my thought was, you know what, we need a counter protest. My thought was like, you know what, that is a real easy way to have influence in your culture. These uh, perverts aren't wrong. Like if you want to influence your culture, go read books to kids. What's more culture making than teaching kids to love books? They're just evil people. They're evil books. They're trying to corrupt them. But I just decided I'll go it's they're they're filling a vacuum left by me. I'm going to go fill it up, and uh, there's not going to be room mm -hmm. for um, you know these these kind of twisted dudes. So I think that's we should look at the Absaloms and learn from them and be more like Nehemiah, right? So Nehemiah is kind of his counterpoint. Nehemiah it 
it has a deep respect for his place in the hierarchy. He respects the emperor, asks for permission. The emperor cares about him. The emperor invests in him. Nehemiah comes. He builds a wall. He says, you know, get your act together. Fight for your family. Fight for your children, your wife. Fight for everything. Let's build this wall up. And then the, the, the amazing part of Nehemiah's story is he comes, rebuilds the walls and gates of Jerusalem, and, uh, and gets, takes care of some of the major sin issues, family issues in there. And then he just goes back. He goes back to his post. That's the man. That's a father. It wasn't about himself. It was about the good of his country. Yeah. It was about the good of his family. It was about the good of folks that he was committed to. He wasn't just merely trying to build a platform, right? He was trying to build a legacy, wow. an intergenerational legacy that fears God. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Okay, we're going to move on, brother, because we got a few chapters to go through here. Um, the second chapter you wrote is masculinity is very good. And I guess as you stated up front that, you know, pretty much everybody knows about the negative. That's that's in our face. The bitter fruit of our rebellion against God is everywhere. You know, we are out of order. We're spinning out of control. There's massive confusion. But in the second chapter, you wrote masculinity is very good. And so, brother, if you could give us some highlights and some truths there, we uh, definitely appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, so we tried to anchor this um, in the beginning in Genesis. And Genesis really reveals to us the purpose of mankind, right? God makes everything in six days. Everything's in its purpose uh, or perfect place and has a, perf a perfect purpose, right? So we find that the the stars are there for uh, times and seasons. In other words, kind of liturgical festivals and all that. Um, everything has its purpose. And then God makes man and he makes man in his image, male and female, he made them and uh, he, he made them good. And he made them for a purpose, which is sometimes referred to as the dominion mandate or the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. I prefer creation mandate. I think that kind of captures the broadness of it. But namely, um, he is to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and subdue uh, the whole world. Now, the way we take that is that the purpose of man was always to worship God because he's made in God's image. And God, through man, was going to multiply his image and multiply worship across the entire planet. And we know that is his long-term purpose because of the rest of Scripture. And so what mankind was given this um, command to fill the world with worshipers that serve God in their every day and, and worship him on the Sabbath. And so you have Adam given this before Eve. Uh, so Adam's been given this command before Eve's even exists. And then God uh, puts Adam in the garden to uh, guard and keep it. Uh, there's a sort of liturgical thing going on there. That's, uh, it's like a temple garden. We, we also know that God uh, plant, planted a garden before there was anything, anything that had been cultivated, and then puts Adam there. So the garden's kind of like a prototype, like go subdue the world, and here's what that'll look like, Adam, right? Um, it'll look like something like this. And we, we know that it's like a temple, because when you have the tabernacle and temple constructed, they both mirror 
the the Garden of Eden on purpose. And so we know this was like some sort of place where you worshiped God and something a little more formal. It's not just like Adam's walking around and random fruit trees, whatever. It, it was a garden, it had been ordered, it had been planted by God. So then God gives man this really clear call to fill the world, but how? He's not, he's not a starfish. He can't just cut off an arm and another person grows, right? Um, so he helps Adam see his need uh, by uh, bringing the animals. And the animals are something that we, to this day, use to accomplish the purpose of dominion, of spreading rule to bringing down mountains, whatever. But none of them are a suitable helper. And so he brings, um, he makes Eve from the man. So God, Adam was made from the dirt to cultivate the dirt. And Eve was made from the man to help the man. And that's a, 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 Adam existed first and then the woman was brought to him. But they were brought together to do what? Well, to uh, fulfill this creation mandate, which requires multiplication, fruitfulness, and dominion. And so man and woman have a, you can't get the creation mandate without them together. The sexes are meant to complement one another. That's where you get this stupid word, complementarian that no one can spell and no one even knows. They spell it wrong all the time. Like It's like someone that's always walking around giving people compliments. That's not what the word means. Um, the complementarianism is right in that the sexes do complement each other. No doubt about that. I mean, there's uh, uh, Chris Wiley, who's a friend of mine, and we quote in the book, uh, talks about how a Xenophone used to say, without his wife, I would die. And a modern man hears that and says, oh, isn't that romantic? No, he literally means without her work to maintain their household and protect them and get things done, they literally would die. Like she's that needed. And those of us who have a wife and um, have a bunch of kids, uh, and I think you and I both fall into that category, we can seriously say there's no way we could maintain the household that we have without our wife, right? Um, I mean, I the loss of my wife would be devastating to my family and to me and to the work that we're doing. And Adam comes to see the, the need and blessing of this wife, that through her, um, you can have children, and those children can have children, and then they build their own households. And so we think a part a central part to the creation mandate is the establishment of households and households are um, not just homes. They're not just buildings. They're uh, the atmosphere. They're the property. They're the um, culture. They're everything that flows out of that. We know that from looking at the life of Abraham, Abraham's household included 300 servants and he was even able to go to war with Kings and that's an that's a actual ancient view of households. Our view of households is a place to watch Netflix, you know, a, a place to sleep. Our view of households is emaciated, and the, uh, uh, we've taken everything out of the household. We took productivity out of the household. Everyone used to have animals or have a, black, a blacksmith shop, like a little side hustle back in the day. You know, you, le you learn about our founding fathers, and they all had like a garden or something, and livestock and they're doing things and uh and then uh you just used to do a lot of education you'd use schoolhouses whatever but a lot of discipleship education hospitality you didn't go out to a restaurant always you had people over for dinner but we've removed education productivity we've removed hospitality we've removed everything and then this household is emaciated and it's just a building where you sleep and eat you know and that is something we wanted to hit because as you 
contemplate the, the conversation about sexuality, there's always something missing. Like when you listen to complementarians, they're obsessed with two things. Um, female ordination. They, they don't want that to happen. I agree with them. That's right. We women should be pastors. And just that men are the leaders in the home and the church. I agree with that too. I would also say the leaders in society. How can you be the leader of home and church and not in society? It makes no sense. Um, but, uh, but what I think I see in those complementarians is a sort of lifting up of this sort of stereotypical 1950s housewife. I don't really believe she ever existed. I think it's just made up kind of, right? I don't think like she's sitting around eating bonbons or whatever. I'm not really sure that it's true. But you, when you hear feminists <laughs> talk about Proverbs 31, where we're giving this example of what a, a mature woman looks like, the sort of woman, you, know, you got 30 chapters in Proverbs of what a man should be and uh, what he should avoid uh, to be a wise, productive, godly man. And then it ends with like, here's a sort of woman you want to be married to, right? And that woman is not a 1950s housewife, nothing like it. Um, she, is, she is out buying property. She is super competent, but neither is she a careerist. She's not like a feminist building another man's household. Because if you right. think about women that work for corporations, um, and aren't deeply involved in their family life or in the way they should be, those women really are just building the patriarchy of the, the, the household of the patriarch of the company, the, the CEO or whatever. Um, and uh, and they're, they do a good job. Women are very competent or whatever, but we, we realize that household helps under, connect how men and women do the creation mandate and also emphasizes and we didn't get to it too much in our book because we had to, we were sick of writing it. <laughs> That's why. Um, but um, we, uh, the reality is that women um, are very gifted. And if the house is emaciated, they are in fact going to find themselves frustrated with not having those gifts used at all. But if the house is a place of production and hospitality and education and ministry, it is a place where a woman's gifts can be fully expressed and developed. So we really wanted to hit the household because we thought if we did get around to writing a book on marriage, we wanted to have a lot of that work already accomplished there and be able to circle back around to it by referencing it. And so this is saying masculinity is good. Um, it, your purpose is a creation mandate to, to fill the world with glory and beautiful, holy culture that honors God through um, working along with the woman that God's given you. And so that's, I think that's really the heart of the chapter. As I told you before the interview, I haven't read this book in a long time. Um, I don't know. I don't think I've actually ever <laughs> read it. I wrote it, so <laughs> I, I forget some aspects. So I hope that's helpful. No, it is, brother, and I I'm, and I'm not even sure if this is the chapter you tackle this in, but you you make mention somewhere in the book how, when it comes to the creation mandate, how specifically that works through Adam, and how that specifically works through Eve, and I believe you kind of emphasize Adam was more to be involved in the subduing aspects of the mandate 
and that Eve was supposed to be more involved in the filling and the multiplying aspects of the mandate. Now, is that in that chapter, brother, or is that somewhere else? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. So um, that's a, actually a pretty common teaching you see on uh, anyone that's writes on sexuality that's somewhat orthodox even. Um, it's not to say that they um, it's exclusive to one sex, but that it's predominant. So it's like a, it's like a distribution. Oh. Um, where it's m- more about what um, more about what the the man and woman uh, focus is on, but there's overlap, and so you have you have forming and uh, filling in Genesis, right? God makes the seas and the land, and then He fills them, right? And so Adam uh, is really uh, good at cultivating, or excuse me, breaking up the land and pushing it out, and uh, then the woman. Uh, cultivates it to the next level. One way to think about this, um, about the power of women, uh, is to think about in the sex act, uh, men give women a very little amount of sperm, which is made into a child. Men um, bring home uh, the bacon and the women make a quiche, right? Men bring home the flour and women make a... um, uh, a loaf of bread. They're, they're multipliers. They fill things, right? They 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 fill the world in that way. And so, men, we are the ones out there pushing the boundaries of our property. It's literally what happens, right? Is that um, if you if you ever bought land, I've got some acreage. You go out there and um, you you knock down all the thorns and thistles. You knock them down, and and then your wife might come out there and put the beehives. We have we've had bees before, and all that sort of stuff. And then you just go and uh, the woman comes out there and makes the land all the more beautiful, right? And that's what we're doing as men is that we're pushing out the boundaries. Uh, we're, we're bringing a basic form to it. And then the women come along and uh, cultivate, finesse, take it to the next level. You know, I, I like that my wife decorates my house as long as it's not decorated in lace everywhere. She can have some room decorated in lace. But um but yeah, I buy the house right. and uh, I love when I go away on business trips, I come home and there's new furniture or a new painting or something. And it's a beautiful place. She's filling my house. I bought it, form it, she fills it. So that that's happening. You see that uh, dynamic that I think is pretty helpful. And so men are the guys out there on the front lines uh, doing the initial work of filling. Another place you see this, or of forming, is that Adam's curse, right? that the, he's going to go out there and cultivate the land, right? He's going to conquer it. But it didn't used to fight back. Now it fights back. I mean, that's what thorns and thistles yeah. are. It's the land fighting back. And he's got to push back against that. The woman, um, her, one of her, uh, her curse is that now the relationship that was supposed to be a source of enjoyment for her, uh, helping her husband, she's not going to always agree with them. She's going to w- want to rule over him at points. Just like... Um, sin wants to rule over uh, Cain in the following chapter. And also the children that are supposed to be a source of just encouragement and blessing is going to actually cause her a lot of pain. And so you see that in their areas of productivity, Adam forming the land, yep. pushing it back, Eve filling the world by like complimenting her husband or having children, in those areas they've been cursed. It is difficult. So you can see that general orientation expressed even in the curse 
Yeah, and that, and that's really important, brother. And I'm not sure which chapter you bring it up, but it was, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, I, I understood some of the truths that you were bringing out, but the way that you communicated, brother, it just, it brought greater illumination. And um, one of the things, and I just shared this with my daughters as we're going through the book, how, you know, there was specific yeah, there was the general creation mandate, but then there was specific functions, you know, towards the man, towards the woman. And then, of course, we committed high treason. You know, there came the fall and there came the consequences of the fall and, and how that specifically impacted the role of a man and a woman. And one of the things that you brought out, brother, is that God has not removed the calling or the mandate, except now there's resistance, there's opposition to that calling and to that pro productivity. And then you go into how that impacts the role of the man and the woman today. Brother, if you could just even expound a little bit on that, because I just thought, brother, that's it. I mean, <laughs> that's it right there. There's a reason why men are lazy, and there's a reason why there's the sin of silence in Adam. There's a reason why men are passive and irresponsibility, you know, or irresponsible, or why women do not want to submit to a man, why women don't want to have kids anymore. There's a reason... And um, so, brother, if you could maybe expound a little bit upon that and then you kind of point out, like, that's the reason why we need Christ. That's the reason why we need redemption. That's why we need salvation. Um, so, bro, I, I thought that was just the way you put it, brother, was so, so good. Yeah, I, I believe we quoted Matthew Henry in that chapter. And Matthew Henry talks about how the curse was to prick us and constantly remind us of our need for Christ, right? And so as we surrender ourselves to our design, we see that it's something's broken and not right. And so you've got, you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And now we live in a fallen age, but we have experienced, as we experience redemption in Christ, we, uh, we are restored to uh, the, our original appetites, right? And those appetites th uh, is to please God, but we're not at home. You feel it. You feel it through your age. You know, one example I always give people is um, when I, uh, I, I can change brakes on a car. I got pretty good at it. And then I had a new car and I never changed brakes on it. And I only had 30 minutes. And I thought, I can change front brakes in 30 minutes. That's not that hard. And so I get in there. And I get to the caliper and there's some weird goofy pin I had never seen before in my entire life. And I was like, what in the world is this thing? And I had gone to a situation where I think I, I messed it up and then it turned into, I had to call off work. It turned into this like eight hour ordeal or whatever. Um, moments like that, moments where you feel your productivity being cursed, um, you get very frustrated and, uh, and the world's not our home, you know, you, you've lost a child. Um, I, I lost a child early on. And when you lose a child, when you feel the pain of that, uh, the curse, death, you say, you know, this is not right. This isn't the place. And 
I think that is God has allowed these things into this world so we might grow up for Him, that we might, we might uh, call out and say, Lord, save me. Um, and so, yeah, that curse is there to drive us to the Lord yeah. Jesus Christ. That bad news, that bad news of day-to-day life is there that we might uh, depend on the gospel alone and not on any sense of that we can somehow build a tower to heaven. I mean, that's what we see, right, in the uh, Tower of Babel is people trying to make their own name great as opposed to those who called on the name of the Lord, right? The reason they called on the name of the Lord, the, yeah. the sons of Seth did, is because the curse. They knew, help me, God. Help me get this, help me in my relationship. Help me in my work. I can't do it without you. And uh, that's a blessing from God. And I'm glad he doesn't lift that uh, difficulty or we might um, descend into full-on chaos. And so, yeah, that's something we, we put in there. And... Also, I don't think we talk about it too much in the book. Oh, I can't remember, but um, you do see a kind of willingness to trade curses where a woman's like, you know what? I don't really want to have kids. I'll tell you what, I'll go to work. And the guy says, you know what? I, I kind of don't really want to work out there. It's hard. So I'll stay at home. <laughs> and, and because they don't feel the same weight there, they don't feel the <laughs> same weight of the curse. It's uh, at least uh, alleviated for some period of time. And I think that's why you'll see women throw themselves whole hog into education and really start their careers much more aggressively than a good deal of men nowadays. Um, and you you have women all getting hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. The women carry the bulk of uh, student debt load in America. And then they'll uh, spend their 20s really trying to b- build a career and then around 30, a lot of these ladies start to wake up and say, oh, if I don't become a mother soon, I might not. And uh, But the same thing is with guys. They kind of jack around playing video games and mountain biking on the weekends and hiking the Appalachian Trail or something instead of developing a career. And then towards the end of their 20s, uh, you know, they want to get married or they want to be respected and they try to... They try to build a career kind of late in life. You can, but it's difficult. And I think that is, you're seeing an expression of, of the curse and of our struggle with it there. And really, if you want to understand what's going on with sexuality, you kind of look at these macro principles uh, in, in Scripture, Genesis in particular. And that's what we're hoping to do with the book, again, is give you macro principles that you can use as a filter to understand what's going on inside you in the world around you. Amen, brother. The thing that I really, really appreciated, brother, when you guys, um, you know, touched on that, you know, the creation mandate, the fall, it really uh, explained and revealed why men are in the condition that they are in and why women are in the condition they are in. So the same creation mandate is still upon us. God's never deviated from that, except now there's resistance, there's opposition, there's a curse upon us. And so, you know, the call is still there. The mandate is still there. But now, you know, men want to be lazy. (laughs) You know, men want to be passive and irresponsible. You know, women, I, I think one of the things you said, like for a woman to fill the mandate, 
you know, two things are required. She has to submit to a man and she has to have children. <laughs> you know what I mean? To fulfill that part of filling the earth. And so we see, you know, with the spirit of the age, you know, how it exploits the fall and this curse upon men and women and that it's only through Christ that original mandate, even though we're opposed, even though we're resisted, can, you know, be restored and we can continue to advance the kingdom of God in the earth. And I got to tell you, brother, that that res resolved a lot of issues um, in, in my thinking, you know, as I approached that topic. And it, it was very, very good, brother. But we, for just for time's sake, bro, we're going to have to kind of go through some of these chapters because I definitely want to hit on uh, the third chapter. You touch on a topic that church doesn't typically want to address. And you said sex is very good. And I don't think many Christians believe that to be true. I was just in Northern Ireland on a, a missionary trip there, and I was having a man's conference. And this guy came up to me and basically said the original sin was sex. And I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, you know, uh, but there, there are a lot of Christians are raising their children and presenting sex as something dirty, something to be ashamed of, something to be uh, distorted. And they don't really teach our children, you know, that it is very, very good. Now, obviously, there's parameters and that has to be within the confines of those parameters. Uh, but it is very good. So, brother, if you can just maybe touch on that briefly and we'll we'll go on uh with these chapters sure um yeah that was a chapter that gets a lot of pushback um i think it's funny i've heard people say it was, it was a very crass chapter i don't think it was i think we were very careful um i think we are i think we are so polluted by sexual sexual immorality everywhere around us we just kind of shut our eyes and think any talking about sex is somehow bad and and we wanted to show that sex drive a man's desire to be with a woman which is hormonal right it's like are, are we saying testosterone is a product of the fall the devil that's the devil's invention because that's what drives that um or you know, what's going on here. So I do think you're not far off with guys like Augustine are definitely uncomfortable with sexual, um, sexual drive. Um, but it's, I, we see it as good. We see it as a desire to fulfill the creation mandate. It, it's the engine of productivity is what we called it. Is that in a society where sex is properly contained, so sex is like a fire. You think of it that way fire in a fireplace is great fire outside of a fireplace is not great fire inside the uh, engine the ch chambers of an engine is uh power fire inside uh the car is not good so fire used in within god's design is very powerful and that's what a sex drive is 
is that a man desires a woman, and then that desire uh, pushes him to get his life in order to take a wife, right? There's other aspects to it, but that is part of that. And so then he takes the wife, um, and then together, uh, in their conjugal love, uh, they become one flesh. So that's speaking of the coitus, the, the sex act. But how is one flesh, uh, what's the greatest what's the greatest manifestation of two becoming one? It's a child, right? I mean, it is, a child is a mixture of two people, and, uh, but it's still new. It's a new person. It's mom and dad, and you have, a, you have several kids. I have seven, um, right. eight, if you include the one that's in heaven. Uh, and with each child, you see weird mixings of you and your wife, uh, it's incredible. Like this one's kind of got your looks, but the wife's mindset yeah. and this one's got your, uh, your mindset, but the wife's looks. And this one is like, I don't know what this one is. This one's super mixed up. And, uh, and, and so you see, um, when you see children walking around, what you should see is the love of a husband and wife displayed to the world. Right. That's what it should be. And, and so, that was created yeah. by sex, yeah, by two people um, wanting each other, desiring each other, loving each other. And so sex, when is done in the confines of marriage to fill the world with worshipers of God out of love for one another, it's a very good thing. And yet uh, it is treated as, as evil and it's treated as it's the domain of the devil. Amen. And the devil, what he wants to do is make... Uh, make sex dirty. He wants to try to claim it, right? And uh, we have to say, no, that's ours. And you can read guys like Martin Luther, who, uh, given his time, was pretty, really, he was open. But Luther and Calvin both worked really hard to restore um, and normalize uh, marriage, family, and even um, sex. Calvin, actually, his consistory, kind of like a presbytery or a session, actually discipline a guy for not having sex with his wife, right? <laughs> so uh, that, I thought that was really funny. Uh, some woman, I guess. Mm. But uh, anyhow, wow. um, as you uh, read that chapter, what we wanted to say is like, guys have been made to feel ashamed about having those desires. And I don't remember if we lay this out, but... You know, a man's sexual desire is exponentially stronger than a woman's, five to ten times. Because they have um, just more testosterone that drives it. And a woman's sexual desire is cyclical. Wow. It really it kind of increases as she moves towards ovulation and, um, and then it decreases. So she, if you feel like your wife's two women in one month, she is hormonally. She really is. And, but you're not. And guys, um, a healthy guy is he doesn't experience anything like menopause in terms of that until he's he's quite older. And so here we have this like desire and it has an outlet. Right. And that outlet is marriage and children, right? It's to uh, make children through love. It's to tie, uh, sex has two purposes, right? The recreation in uh, the sort of covenant renewal, like I'm committed to you, I love you, I depend on you, all that stuff, that entwining of souls um, in that, you know, I'm being kind of metaphorical in my language. And then uh, obviously procreation, 
for the world with children. And so sex is good. It fills the world with future patriarchs. It fills the world with image bearers. It fills the world with women who will fill the world. You want to have a positive view of sex. Uh, I, you've, I know you're a pastor, correct? Or have served as a pastor? Yeah, I'm, I've been all over the service map, brother. I'm pastor, evangelistic field, missionary, you know, front line of the battle kind of deal <laughs> kind of deal gotcha so i mean one of the main complaints you see in marriage is finances in-laws and sex <laughs> sex i think um i think people that have grown up looking at porn but which is both men and women now um and it's not just yeah. it's it's in the movies it's in the magazines it's in it's everywhere you know, I was looking someone up on Facebook and, and on Facebook, it was a porn site, like a porn content. I was just looking up a name and I was like, what in the world? You can't avoid it these days. People that uh, have seen sex as something twisted and disgusting um, have real problems <laughs> with it. Like it's there's guilt associated with it. So we wanted people to see yeah. that your hormonal desires are a gift from God when they are restored by grace, right? So grace doesn't, um, grace doesn't uh, elevate nature into some, something different. Uh, neither does it obliterate nature. Grace restores nature. And we wanted people to see that the gospel will restore your desires. Yes. A man's des ambition. Ambition for the name of God, awesome. He who aspires to be an elder seeks a good work, right? Uh, but ambition, selfish ambition, leads to all sorts of destruction. Sexual desire, again, uh, in the confines of marriage for the glory of God towards his purposes, beautiful and wonderful. A anger, strength, if it's a holy anger, if it's strength put towards productive work for the glory of God, good. If it's used in wrath and used to hurt others or break down things, it's bad. These base desires that we men have, right this testosterone that makes us more assertive more aggressive and um intends to have a higher sex drive these things when um under through redemption are restored and properly ordered and subdued towards the purpose of god are engines of productivity and good things that's what we wanted to say in that chapter yeah amen i think one of the statements that really stood out to me brother which i never thought in those terms but i thought you captured it it was so very good you said sex is the engine that fulfills the creation mandate the dominion mandate and I don't think many Christians think in those terms, brothers, and you know, uh, in, in in those terms. And so I think for many, um, you know, sex has become a recreational sport, you know, and uh, and I know that's a part of it, brother. I, I know there's a, a spiritual, emotional, and mental attachment to our wives, you know, in the act. Uh, but obviously, God wants to fill this earth with godly seed. And so there is a procreation aspect of it that, unfortunately, many in the church um, has lost sight of. I remember I, I went into a church and I preached on the least favorite blessing of the Christian. 
which is children. You know, we, we clamor for all kinds of blessings from God. Why don't we clamor for that blessing where he says, you know, they're gifts, they're rewards, they're blessings. And, uh, and unfortunately, brother, I think the enemy has done a great job in distorting and corrupting sex. And of course, he has a vested interest that uh, image bearers are not brought into the earth because, you know, Jesus, he said, allow the children to come to me for such is the kingdom of God. And so, you know, what's the toll of the enemy's demise? Uh, Because in God's mind, the kingdom equals children. So, you know, why birth control? Why abortion? Why homosexuality? You know, what is this all about, kind of, Alfie? You know, and most of the church, brother, they're, they're not connecting the dots when it comes to, you know, sex, marriage, family, children, and how this God uses this to advance his kingdom in the earth to dispossess the enemy and set this nation and our world free. And uh, you, you did a great job, brother, in, in bringing out uh, those truths. And I praise God for it. We're going to go on, bro. Um, the, the chapter four, you talk about the war on sex. And uh, and I believe you you show the difference there between. But uh, I'm yeah. just going to say one good come online to your wife is you can look at her and say, hey, babe, do you want to go fulfill the creation mandate? Right. So really one way you can do it. Um, but anyway, what, uh, yeah, the next chapter is the war on sex. And so the devil wants us uh, to ruin sex in two ways. So his first stratagem is to spread the idea that sex itself is dirty rather than unifying and fruitful. And of course, the second strategy is also pernicious, the claim that sexual promiscuity is the pathway to true liberty. And um, I think we wrote, uh, the truth is that the devil hates the creator. So he hates the creator's division between male and female. So the war is on sex or gender. Those words sadly are used kind of interchangeable today. You know, sex usually refers to the biological, um, ontological reality, where gender refers to the cultural um, aspects of it. But uh, we use them interchangeably. But uh, the war, the war on sex is the real battle. Um, it's not male versus female. That's what you call misogyny. Or female versus male, misandry. Uh, the enemy of our day is androgyny unbelieving humanity against sexual distinctions. And the first draft of this book was a long reflection on androgyny that got very technical um, because we think androgyny, it's kind of like household. Household unlocks a lot when you're trying to understand the relationships of the sex. And androgyny really helps you understand sex relationship to culture and androgyny is where you make um sexual realities interchangeable or you blend them together and that is what the devil is doing more than anything is that he's trying to remove divisions 
So hierarchy is the vision. And so um, God is a God of order, not of chaos. We see that um, on that first day, the spirit brooding over the waters. It's all like moving around. And then from that, God brings a uh, ordered earth. Uh, interesting enough, he orders it only to a certain extent. And then he says, Adam, Eve, go order the rest of it, right? And so we are to be people that bring order to things. And even right. prior to the fall in the pristine creation, that was part of our design. God likes to see us be like him. He's a God that makes beautiful things. He's a God that makes things that work together. And there's a hierarchy in all things, whether it's man over the creation or it's uh, the hierarchy that exists inside sexual dynamics. Um, God likes to do that. And the devil uh, can bring confusion by eliminating those distinctions, kind of like when you watch uh, the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. There's one scene where he's trying to get back one of his sons, which has been captured by the British. And he instructs his younger boys to go ahead and take out the captains and then work their way down the various officers. And in doing so, it, it causes confusion. And that's kind of the devil's um, way of doing things. He tries to take out the captains or he tries to uh, get people like Cora who are not satisfied with their place in the world and want to usurp the authority over it. He, he uses... Um, those sort of uh, uh, tactics to lead to a flattening of all things, right? So the devil hates hierarchy. He loves confusion because in confusion, you can set up your own government. So you come in, you cause the government to be in disarray. And then in that time of disarray, you can take over and set up something new. And that's kind of what the devil's doing there. If you listen very carefully to egalitarianism, it really is about saying men are not that they're equal because as Christians, we don't deny that there's a base equality amongst the sexes. They both are made in the image of God. They both have uh, the same access to God, the father, through Jesus, the son. They both have the same value. Um, the blood of Christ was shed not in one way or, or in, for men or in a different way for women. Uh, they, all that stuff's equal. Um, their sins as equally terrible. Their um, their redemption is is as equally glorious. What egalitarians are really saying, if you listen, is that men and women are saint the same. And there's not e equality and sameness are different things. Uh, men and women are not the same, and everyone knows that. Um, you, we are learning that really quick through trans transgenderism. The culture is being forced to figure out um, that, right. uh, you know, S Serena Williams is a talented tennis player and uh, McEnroe got in trouble for saying, I don't know, how, is, how when they asked her where she was ranked among, among all tennis players, including men, he said something like 800, right? And those people got really offended by that. He actually was complimenting her. He was like saying, you know, he was actually saying she was really good considering, you know, where she's at. And, um, and that's just because people are, have kind of taken the insanity pill. But that's the devil, man. The devil has been lying and saying that um, 
anything, women saying anything I can do, I can do better. And, um, and that's not true. Like one reason we're so hard on guys for physical abuse and not on women, because women abuse their husbands a lot. Husband, uh, wives will scratch, bite, punch. And one of the reasons they'll do that is because they know we culturally can't hit them. And they'll also know that a, a decent guy knows if he hits a woman, he may kill her. There's guys that get in these bar fights and punch a guy in his temple and they go to jail for, you know, first degree manslaughter or something because they kill a guy. We are powerful. We're, we're different. And that's why it's super important that a man understand his power and his strength and use it in a gentle uh, way, right? That he has his strength under control. Um, and so there's all these great distinctions uh, and they, they're a benefit, but the people that claim they love diversity don't. They, I remember once I got in trouble in art class because we were supposed to mix different colors together. Uh, using like paint or something and me and my uh, classmate we mixed them all together and instead of having like the different shades of purple and all this stuff it was just brown that's the world the world doesn't have a rainbow the world is just a brown dirty muddy water right it's an, an androgynous mess all mixed up together and we wanted to <laughs> show this to people is that when you listen to like um any of these these complementarian women that are writing theolog theological tomes, they, they really are just feminists, almost all of them. I think, I, I think Nancy Percy may have wrote a book on it that was pretty good. But, you know, some of these other ladies who've already kind of fallen out of prominence, um, if you ask them, in what way is a man uniquely good as opposed to a woman? Or what way is a woman uniquely good? They can tell you in all the ways they're exactly the same. But when you ask them, say, how are, they, how are they different? And that's a good thing. Watch them. Watch them struggle to come up with an answer. Because all they think is like really rare and This One way I like to put it is that guys make terrible wives and mothers. We're not good at it. I am yeah. the worst wife there could ever be. I'm sure of it. I am certainly the worst mother. Women make terrible husbands and terrible fathers. It's against our nature. It's, it's, and everyone knows it. And that's why back in the 80s, Michael Keaton did a movie called Mr. Mom. It wasn't a drama. It was a comedy. Because a man being a mom is a comedy. Even if you watch something, and I wouldn't yeah. recommend it, but I remember I saw this um, episode of Family Guy, which is a crash show that was on Fox for many years, but I saw this years ago um, when I think I might have still been in high school. But uh, the, the mother in the show gets sent to jail for some reason, and so the husband is in charge of the family, and in uh, the house has just gone to hell, <laughs> and the baby hasn't changed his diaper for a couple of days. He's like, please, I beg you, change me. Um, it's not to say that guys, I mean, so that's kind of, you see both sides. They're mocking men. But at the same time, there's a base truth there is that men um, are not really good at that stuff, right? As good as a woman can be. Now, when I was lived alone, my house was clean and tidy, but I also didn't have lots of furniture. I didn't care, right? I just, I think I ate on a table and I had one chair and 
And then on that table is my computer. <laughs> like I just, but then you get, I got married and then suddenly I got all this furniture and stuff. Um, but uh, we're different. And the devil's attack is to, um, is to confuse us. I remember in uh, my ordination exam that I was asked a question that was very controversial and I didn't really know the answer and the right thing to say, but I knew that my ordination committee was divided on it. So I purposely asked the two guys what they thought about it because I knew they would argue. And they did. They argued for like five minutes during my exam. And then they, then they forgot to talk to me. And it's like, it, I did. I'm on trial for the resurrection of life, um, for the resurrection of the dead. Um, <laughs> the devil's trying to get you men and women to fight <laughs> so we don't work together. If we work together and have children and build households, plant churches, make culture, then the world will just be filled with the glory of God. So he wants to turn us on each other. Amen, bro. I, I think um, one of the things that I've ministered on through the years, you know, just touching on this topic, you know, is um, the, the struggle, the battle between the sexes is the difference between value and function. And, and as you've pointed out, yeah, in, in salvation and redemption, God makes no distinction. Men are not superior. Women are not inferior. But where he clearly puts major distinction is the role and function of a man and a woman. And so, so many women, to get value, they're leading and becoming very, very aggressive as a man, thinking that somehow that makes them more valuable to God and to this world. And of course, that is the opening that the enemy is exploiting uh, to bring such devastation. You know, the, the breakdown of the family, divorce, you know, kids that are defecting from the faith left and right. Uh, I mean, the, the bitter fruit of feminism, brother, is just massive because the church herself will not get this truth right the difference between value and function so brother i'm not sure if we're going to have time to go through each chapter but i did want to bring out uh some of the things that, uh, that you could maybe touch on people are going just going to have to get this book to read read every chapter and glean some of the truths and principles you're bringing the light here but i did want to touch on a the church effeminate if you can if you can uh, briefly speak to that then we want to talk about gravitas how important that is and then finish, brother, with this, um, the importance of vision and mission when it comes to manhood, brother, how critically important that is, not only for the man, but for the woman. So, brother, if you could touch on the church effeminate, brother, we'll just go from there. Sure. So basically, the first half of the book, seven chapters, is manhood lost. Second half of the book is manhood regained. And so the real um, pivot is... Uh, talking about how the, the chief way we gain our manhood is through being born again and coming underneath the fatherhood of God. And that's a chapter, I believe, right before the Church of Feminine. It's really close. Um, and then, in the, so if Jesus is masculine, 
the apostles are men and and God is a father and patriarchy is part of God's design and seen in the gospel and all that stuff, you have to ask yourself, why is the church so gay, right? And I use gay kind of jokingly the way we used to use it back in the 90s and 2000s and not get canceled. You know, we were talking about something that was just kind of like sissy or it just didn't make sense. Why is the church um, so effeminate? Why is the church um, so skewed towards um, feminine appeal? Nothing wrong with feminine appeal, uh, but where a church is both for men and women, right? And so why is the preaching uh, not risk-taking? Why is the preaching uh, full of uh, carefully stated comfort? Uh, statements that are hedged so no one ever can get upset. Uh, why is the church music uh, love songs to Jesus? Um, why are the pastors men that you wouldn't fall into battle? I always say, when I think of what a pastor should be in terms of his masculinity, I think of like Tom Hanks' character in Saving Private Ryan or Dick Winter in Band of Brothers. It's not about being a barbarian, right? The most I heard people say that's what we were teaching in this book. And I'm like, man, your reading comprehension is, is low. Um, not at all. Um, I, I think masculinity is that sort of godly confidence, that godly um, gravitas, so we'll get to it in a second. And where are the men that you would follow into battle, fall into the trenches um, in the church? Most pastors are not that. Most pastors are ineffective. Most pastors are um, either very, they won't take hard stands. Uh, they, we saw this during kind of the COVID breakdown that they, in times of crisis, they, they fold under pressure quite easily. They're not the best. So guys go to churches and the church is, doesn't appeal to men at all. And that's why churches are primarily female in America to the tune of 60% or higher in many cases. And, and this, that's bad for women, too, for lots of reasons. You, men tend to bring more money in supporting the church. Who are these women going to marry? You know, there's certain tasks that men are better at doing than women are and vice versa. But so why is the church so effeminate? Now, effeminate is a word I just want to explain for a moment that uh, effeminate, let's take a, a woman. A woman's hips sway. Because her hips are, especially when she's ovulating, her hips sway. And the reason that happens is that her hips, one of the way you know a female skeleton versus a male skeleton is the way her hips are designed. And that's tied to her ability to have children. And when she's ovulating, um, a lot of those uh, uh, ligaments in there, they kind of soften up and it causes her to sway more, right? She moves back and forth. Uh, guys don't have hips designed that way and they certainly don't have periods and they don't ovulate. And so when you see a guy sway his hips, like a woman sways his hips, you're like, Ugh, right? You're like grossed out. Like, what is that? Um, and one way that us uh, homosexuals try to present themselves as more feminine is to sway their hips. It's unnatural. It's like gross. It's effeminate. On a woman, femininity is beautiful. On a man, it's, re it's repulsive and effeminate. Just like masculinity on a woman 
is brash and gross and nothing worse than a loud woman in scripture. That's not just a woman that has like a loud voice. It's talking about a woman that doesn't have grace and poise and carry herself in a dignified way. And, you know, scripture talks about that a lot. I had someone complain the other day that we spent a lot of time talking about loud women. I was like, it came up in one chapter and then another chapter briefly. We don't, we didn't really talk about women that much, but effemacy is when the feminine is applied to something that should be masculine or something that's overly feminine when it should be a little more representative of both sexes. That's what's happened in the church. It's a long battle. It's been going on a long, long time. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux, maybe 12th century, having bridal mysticism, where basically um, the, indiv the Christian's individual relationship to Jesus is treated in terms of marriage. And I don't want to have a marriage relationship with Jesus as an individual, and Scripture doesn't teach that. Okay, brothers and sisters, I'm just going to have to jump in here. This is a longer-than-usual episode for Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas, but we have a wonderful guest uh, that has co-authored a great book, it's good to be a man. I hope you are enjoying this. I hope you're getting a lot out of it. I know I have. And again, I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to get this book. Get it to your sons. Get it to your dads, your uncles. Uh, get it to the men in your life. It's an excellent, excellent book. It's what men need. And so just encourage you. We'll have the link uh, where you can order the book and get it out far and wide. Uh, we do plan on having episode two next week, and so you could be praying about that. Until then, you keep pressing on to that high calling prize in Jesus' name. God bless you, saints.